Please join me in prayer. Father God, may your presence continue to guide this service this morning, Lord. I pray for clarity of thought, clarity of speech. I pray, Lord, that as we've already sung about this morning, the ancient words of your word would change lives today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As you get to know people in life, certain character qualities about particular people leave stronger and more memorable impressions on you, don't they? You know what I'm talking about, because when you think about your grandmother, you might think of hospitality. When you think about your father, you might think about working hard. When you think about Bernie Madoff, you probably think about greed. Even though no person can be reduced to a single character quality, we naturally think of certain individuals this way, don't we? And the same thing is true when we think about God. Those of us that have positive views about who God is tend to think about the more naturally comforting aspects about God's character. But those that have more negative views about who God is tend to think about the seemingly less comfortable aspects of God's character. Nevertheless, as Bible-believing, church-going Christians, we would confess with the writers of the Apostles' Creed that God is the almighty maker of heaven and earth. But do we really know what we profess What does it mean that God is almighty? Well, thanks to David and his inspiration from the Spirit of God, we can know. And we're going to look at it this morning from Psalm 139. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 139. Now, as Christians, we tend to overshadow God's might and his authority with his grace and his kindness and his forgiveness and his love. And it's right that we focus on those things. Remember God's great grace with Jonah and his great compassion on the Ninevites. But we cannot ignore, we cannot overlook his intrinsic power and his might. And that's what we're going to see this morning from Psalm 139. We're going to look at the first half of this psalm this morning, verses 1 through 12. And in two weeks from today, on the 30th, we will conclude with the second half of this psalm, verses 13 to 24. Now, each psalm stands alone as its own literary unit. And so I was somewhat hesitant to divide this psalm up, but it was either one 45 to 50-minute message or two 20 to 25-minute messages, so I decided to go with the latter. And I'm confident that most of you, if not all of you, would probably agree with that decision. But this morning, I think I heard an amen there. This morning, we will see from God's word that the attributes of God Almighty are comforting for the people of God. The attributes of God Almighty are comforting for the people of God. Even those characteristics about who God is that Uh, initially might cause some level of discomfort in us, are ultimately comforting for the people of God. Now, Psalm 139 is composed of four stanzas of six verses. And so we're going to divide it up in that way. This morning we'll be looking at stanzas one and two, 
In two weeks, we'll look at stanzas three and four. Uh, So look with me now at stanza one. I strongly encourage you, as any time we get together and look at God's word, that you would open up and that you would follow along as we look at this, because the imagery that we see here in Psalm 139 is rich. It is incredible. So look at Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1 with me now. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now right away in verse 1, we read the theme of the entire psalm. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. It is that God knows us. He knows us completely. Now, this is figurative language. Um, God doesn't have to search us to find out about us. He already knows everything about us uh, before we're even created, before we're even born. Now, because this is poetry, Hebrew poetry, it is full of figures of speech Uh, And I know what some of you are thinking immediately. You're thinking, oh no, poetry, figures of speech. This is going to be miserable. I'm not an English person. Well, let me assure you that I'm not really an English person either. In fact, in 12th grade, I got pretty aggravated at my English teacher because I finished the first semester one point from an A in the class. And he would not let me do anything for bonus credit to bring up my grade. Now, looking back... uh, I didn't deserve to get what I got, so I'm thankful for what I got. And let me assure you that I am not an English person, but the imagery and the figures of speech in this psalm are incredible. So bear with me. Get this in verses 2 and 3. Look back at the text. David says, you know when I sit and when I rise. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. Right away we see something called Merism employed, M-E-R-I-S-M. And what a merism is, a merism uses two extremes to communicate one truth. Notice what he says. He says, you know when I sit and when I rise, you discern my going out and my lying down. What David was saying was not that God just knows these particular movements when he makes them, that God knows these movements and everything in between. That's what a merism is. Two poles that presents one truth. So not only does God know our thoughts, verse 2, before we ever think them, not only does he know our words, verse 4, before we ever speak them, but he knows every movement we make before we ever make it. Verse 3 says that God is familiar with all our ways. And that familiar describes a habitual Knowledge. In other words, God knows us as well as we know our habits. If you have good hygiene, you didn't think very hard about brushing your teeth this morning, you just did it. Or at least uh, whoever's sitting next to you as you were singing, Be Thou My Vision, hopes that you brushed your teeth this morning. If you value your safety, you don't think that hard about putting your seatbelt on when you get in the car to go somewhere, you just do it. It's become a habit. God knows us that well. He knows us as well, or really better, 
then we know and do these things that we do on an everyday basis without even thinking about them. God knows us completely, intimately, fully. And that is the picture of stanza one in Psalm 139. Now, we don't have to remind God because he knows us so well. We don't have to remind him who we are. When we pray, we don't have to tell God who, who is speaking before we speak to him, even if we haven't spoken to him lately, because he already knows us. Now, true story, my wife, Ashley, uh, played a lot of sports in high school, and before basketball games, she's told me this story, uh, that they would often pray together as a team for the game, and they would kind of rotate who prayed at various games. And this one particular young lady, every time she prayed, she would begin by telling God who she was and where she lived. And when asked about it, she said that she did that because she did not want God to get her confused with someone else. Now, that, that sounds silly to us, uh, and it is because we understand that God is omniscient. But it does make some logical sense that it would be fairly difficult to keep 7 billion people straight at any one given time doesn't it? But God knows us fully. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And that's what we see here from stanza one of this psalm, that God is omniscient. There is nothing that God doesn't already know. Now in 2003, a film called Bruce Almighty hit the box office. And it was a success uh, from a financial standpoint. And shortly after that, four years later, its director uh, made a, an attempt at a sequel with Evan Almighty that did not do quite so well. Bruce Almighty grossed nearly $500 million worldwide, whereas Evan Almighty turned out to be a financial loss. Uh, but in any case, uh, in Bruce Almighty, Bruce, the main character, is played by Jim Carrey. And he questions God. In fact, he accuses God of not doing his job very well when a series of unfortunate events take place in his life. And so God, played by Morgan Freeman, gives Bruce almighty powers in an effort to teach Bruce how difficult it really is to run the universe. And as you can imagine, Bruce failed miserably, even with supernatural, supernatural powers, just as any of us would. But that is only because we are not God. God knows all things. And because of who he is, there is nothing difficult for him. God is omniscient. He knows everything about every one of us. He knows every thought. He knows every movement. He knows every word. He knows every action. He knows every like. He knows every dislike. He knows every personality trait. He knows every sin. He knows every temptation. He knows every peculiarity. That's a tough word for me to say. But he knows everything about us. And if we're completely honest with ourselves, that is a bit uncomfortable. That bothers us a little bit that somebody, especially God, knows us that well. And David felt the same way. And that's why in verse 5 he said that God 
has hemmed him in behind and before that his hand has been laid upon him. Now often in scripture, God's hand being laid upon someone signifies protection, comfort, blessing, but not right here. David is saying that he feels trapped and the image is, image is of a bug that's trapped on a table. When you trap a fly on a table, that fly is trapped. There's nowhere for it to go. And David is saying he cannot escape God's knowledge of him. He says that God's knowledge is too wonderful for him, too lofty for him to attain. In other words, it is extraordinary. It is amazing. It is incomprehensible. It is beyond human capability to understand. And as David reflected on that truth, he began to wish, as we often do, that there was somewhere that he could escape God's knowledge. Some place that he could go and have some privacy, some alone time. And this is where we pick up in stanza two. So look with me now at verses seven through 12. David wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So David says, where can I go from your spirit, God? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I be all alone? Have you ever tried to run from God? Have you ever known that God has called you to, to ministry in a certain capacity, to serve in a, a, a particular way? Have you ever felt that God has called you to reach out to a specific person with the truth of his love? Or maybe God has specifically convicted you about a certain sin in your life. And you intentionally avoided that calling. Now chances are, I'm willing to bet that we all have. We've all done something like that. Remember Jonah? We studied last month and we saw that, that Jonah was called to go and to proclaim the truth of God's word to a wicked people. And instead, he fleed the presence from the Lord. He went in the opposite direction. But you can't do that. Because God is not only omniscient, he not only knows all things, but he is omnipresent. He is present in all places at the same time. There is nowhere to go to escape the presence of God. Nowhere can we find privacy from God. And so as David looked around outside... He began to describe God by what he saw. And what does he say in verse 8? He says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths or the grave or Sheol, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And did you catch what just took place there? We have two more of these merisms. I'm telling you, it does not take an English major to see it, just a careful look at God's word. God's word is rich. 
It is inexhaustible, just like our God. Now check this out, verse 8. David looks up, he says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I could somehow go to the highest place, launch myself to the highest place imaginable, God, you'd still be there. And if I could dig myself to the lowest place possible, God, you'd still be there. You'd still be with me. You'd still see me. And then he looks out to the east. What does it say in verse 9? If I rise on the wings of the dawn. So he looks out as far as he can to the east as the sun's rays are rising. And as soon as they rise, he imagines himself somehow being able to ride the rays of the sun at the speed of light in the opposite direction. If I settle on the far side of the sea, that's what it says. Talking about the Mediterranean Sea that was to the west of Israel. If I go to the farthest place east imaginable or the farthest place west imaginable, God, you would still be there. You would still see me. There is no way, nowhere to go that Almighty God is not present. And that's, that's somewhat uncomfortable. And those of you that have been paying very close attention are probably questioning my entire thesis uh, of this sermon was that the attributes of God Almighty are ultimately comforting, not uncomfortable, to the people of God. But here's the reality in which David finds himself as he writes these truths. He imagines himself in some of these places. He's trying to escape God. He's trying to think where he could possibly go that God would not see him, that God would not be with him. And as he's doing so, he suddenly realizes that if he was in some of those places, he would not want to be alone. He would not want to be away from God's presence. See the tone shift in verse 10? He says, even there, even in those places, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Now earlier, God's hand was trapping David. This is a different picture. The picture here is of comfort, of protection. His right hand is holding David safely. God is with us wherever we are in life. Whatever you're facing today, whatever your family is facing today, know that God not only knows about it, but God is with you. There is no place on earth or in this universe or anywhere that God Almighty is not fully present and aware of what's happening. And then David thinks of another, another way to explain the presence of God. In verses 11 and 12, he says, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, at some point or another, I'm willing to bet that most of you, maybe not all of you, but most of you, wish that you had night vision. Do you not? I know that I have, I have wished that before. Night vision is one of those superpowers that every kid, probably every young boy, wishes they had at some time or another. And particularly recently, uh, 
as on nights that I, it's, that, it, that it's my turn to put Kinsley to bed at night, she's at that stage where we can put her in her bed and she'll go to sleep in her bed, but not if, not if she thinks that either Ashley or myself is not in the room with her. So usually we'll stay until she falls asleep or until she's almost asleep, and then we'll kind of sneak out. But I'm convinced that the darker it is in the room, the more likely she is to go to sleep, or at least go to sleep quickly. And so I get it as dark as I can, and I kind of come up next to her crib, and usually I kind of pat her back until she goes to sleep. And no lie, true story, she, she now associates with uh, pat, patting her back with going to sleep. And so even uh, when she doesn't really want to go to sleep, when she's just pretending that she wants to go to sleep, she'll lay down and reach around and try to pat her own back. But that's another story. But when I'm trying to put her to sleep, I'm sitting there and I'm trying to assure her, assure her that I'm there with her until she goes to sleep. But when it's dark, like I said, it needs to be dark for her to go to sleep. I can't see that well. Sometimes I think that she's asleep. Maybe it's just wishful thinking that she's already asleep and she's really not. So I'll kind of sneak out of the room. As soon as I hit that door, wah, she knows that, that I'm gone. And so it's in those moments that I wish that I could see even when the lights aren't on. And the picture right here in verses 11 and 12, that day or night, darkness or light, it makes no difference to God Almighty. Because even the darkness will not be dark to God. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as light to God. Isn't that incredible? It makes no difference. God is not hindered by distance, by time, by might, or by circumstances. The same God who is patient and gracious, merciful, compassionate, forgiving, is also all-knowing and ever-present and not hindered in any way by circumstances. What an incredible God that we gather in the name of this morning. And because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead who became God in the flesh, these same truths are also equally applicable to him as well. Remember the stories in the New Testament? Remember Luke chapter 5 when Jesus has been teaching and his followers are gathered around him and then he tells Simon Peter to, to put his boat out a little further and to cast his nets down into the sea, and, and Simon Peter's initial response is, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught a thing. But he does it anyway because his Lord, because his master tells him to, and as soon as he puts his nets down, he catches so many fish that his nets begin to break. How did Jesus know that? Remember Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and he told this, this woman that he knew that she had had five husbands and that the man that she was currently living with was not her husband? How did Jesus know that? Or how did Jesus know that Judas Iscariot, Iscariot would betray him or that Simon Peter would deny him? Because Jesus also knows all things. He is omniscient. Remember when Jesus is calling his disciples in John chapter 1 and Nathaniel is told about Jesus, and then Nathaniel comes to Jesus and is amazed by Jesus because Jesus knows about Nathaniel. He tells Nathaniel, I saw you when you were still under the fig tree. 
Not only is our Savior omniscient, but our Savior is omnipresent as well. Remember what he told his disciples in that famous passage at the end of Matthew that we call the Great Commission? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then what did he say? He said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We serve an incredible God. And I don't know what, what you're facing today. I don't know what you're dealing with today, but I have no doubt that a number of people in this very room this morning are facing difficulty and hardship today. And maybe you, like Job, are asking God why he is allowing you to experience what you're experiencing by way of sickness or death or grief or depression or addiction or abuse or job loss or whatever. But know that we serve a God who knows every circumstance we face, every trial we face, every hardship we face, and who promises to be with us through them all. For the people of God, for those that have gone from death to life, to those who have experienced what we saw represented in baptism this morning, forgiveness of sins, restored relationship with God Almighty, God the Father, then the presence of God through all circumstances is ultimately very comforting. But for those that don't know God in that way, those that don't know God Almighty as he desires to be known by us, or those that aren't living a life that reflects knowledge of him in a relationship with him, then these truths about God Almighty should be greatly troubling. They should cause a certain level of discomfort. Because God knows about every sin we commit, everything we're wrapped up in, and no sin will be ignored by the holy, just, righteous, all-knowing creator of the universe. But the good news is that that same God offers forgiveness for all sin. Have you been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ today? The only way to go from being troubled by God's character to being comforted by God's character is by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Do you know Christ? Are you convicted or are you comforted by the character of God today? God's word invites all of us to repent before him today and to live lives of worship that reflect the truths about who he is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for today. Lord, we thank you that you are with us today. Lord, if you were not here, our gathering would be meaningless. But we praise you because you are an almighty God. Lord, that you know all things and that you are present in all places. And we find comfort in that today. Lord, and 
for those that are troubled by those truths. Lord, I pray that that you would draw them to yourself this morning, that people would turn to you as a result of the truths of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit today. Lord, we love you, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.